I'll start with the story. When Michelangelo, the famous artist, was uh, painting his magnificent fresco on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, it, it was said that he, he was so painstakingly serious about the details of it that many historians say that, that he began to lose his eyesight in the process of the four years that he spent staring at that ceiling this close to it. 68 feet off the ground, and he painted 340 individual scenes. And one day, one of his friends had simply asked him the question, who's going to notice if this is perfect or not? And Michelangelo responded, I will. See, the greatest part of that story to me is that we now, with all the technology we have, it's, it's easy to understand why someone would spend so much time making something perfect. But that long ago, hundreds of years ago, there's no way that he could have known that technology would advance to the point that everyone on the ground could see what he saw just feet below the ceiling. He could have painted it knowing that 68 feet below, people would think that's pretty darn good. Who will notice if it's perfect or not? I will. That's integrity, that no matter who sees it, no matter who's around, no matter the circumstances, this is a conviction that's not going to change. 1,500 years earlier, there was another man who lived with that same sense of integrity, never knowing that the details of his life would be scrutinized step by step, word for word, and every letter that he wrote to the early church if you've been here for the last few months as we've been walking through the series of Acts, you'll know that I'm talking about the Apostle Paul. As we look at Acts 23 through 26 today, that's a lot to cover, and so we're not going to read a massive amount of what's going on. It's going to be more of a bird's eye view, an overview of this text. But I'm going to pull out some principles that, to me, uh, show what, in, uh, what a man of integrity he was. See, integrity says... That it's not the circumstances around you, but the convictions within you that drive your decisions. So as we walk through the story of Acts, this, this book of Acts, we've seen God do some incredible, incredible things. But probably the most incredible thing, as, as God launched the church, was he roped someone into it that was at that time an enemy of the church. Saul, who became the Apostle Paul. And Paul, for 21 years, served faithfully as a church planter, as a pastor, appointing people to ministry, training them up. And in this point, he had been, he'd been warned in, in Acts 21 to not go to the temple, not go to Jerusalem at all because his life was in danger if he went, and he went anyway. And that's what we find here after he's been arrested in Acts 23. He's been arrested for worshiping at the temple. We're starting with verse 1. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you should not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that 
One part were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees. He cried out to the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to, hope, to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. When we read about Paul's words and actions, we can kind of distill it into just a few different things. Integrity is doing the right thing, it is saying the right thing, and it is doing both of those because you believe the right thing. Now this is only going to be a one-point sermon. By the end of it, you might decide that it had no point. Um, But as we kind of go through this, I want us to see that the things that Paul believed is that Jesus is alive, Jesus is with us, and that there's hope at the end of our suffering. Let's start with Choose, this is the only point, choose integrity over efficiency. What does that mean? Well, uh, integrity over efficiency, the efficient thing is to just make a beeline for your desired outcome no matter what you have to do to get there. Integrity plays a long game. It, It doesn't cut corners. It doesn't make choices in light of potential blowback from the decision that you make. Paul says this in verse 1, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now, Paul wasn't blind to his own faults. In fact, elsewhere in Scripture, he calls himself the chief of all sinners. In Romans 7, he talks about this internal struggle, this war within him as the Holy Spirit lives in him, and yet he continues to do the wrong things. Paul's not blind to his own faults. So what does he mean? Well, Paul is saying that he has followed Jesus no matter what it would cost him. That his, because of his unwavering followership of Jesus, his conscience was clear before God. He could have easily shut it down. After 21 years of faithfully serving the Lord, sharing Jesus with thousands of people, planting an, an, un, an innumerable number of churches and, and training people up, he had been faithful, he'd been beaten, he'd been imprisoned. In the later chapters, he's going to talk about how he'd, he'd been through shipwrecks. He had done so much for the kingdom of God. It would have been not really okay, but it would have been understandable if he said, I have served my tail off. I'm going to step back for a little bit. But he didn't. That would have been the efficient thing to do. That would have been the easy thing to do. But he couldn't stay quiet about the resurrection. See, back in Acts 21, I'd kind of already mentioned this, uh, Paul's friends surround him and basically have an intervention for him as he's about to go to Jerusalem. And they're like, hey, we've been praying. We feel like the Lord's shown us this is going to be a really bad time for you. And this is how he responded. What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. See, that's the biggest mark of integrity, when you know that the thing at the end of the journey is bad news. When you know that that going there and doing the right thing is going to cost you. When you know things are going to end poorly and you still do the right thing. It's easy to say you're going to follow Jesus and go wherever he says when you're sipping coffee with your friends at the local coffee shop or when you're in the warmth of your own home on a beautiful summer day when the sun is shining down. It's easy to expect yourself to be faithful when the waters are low, when the winds aren't blowing against you. See, interestingly, Paul not only knew 
because of what his friends said? Paul knew because he used to be on the other side of it. Joining with those who persecuted the church and planning as they gathered around the water cooler at work about how they were going to conspire against the way and, and make sure that they dragged Christians away from their family. Paul knew that side of it. He knew how ruthless they were. He knew how serious they were. But outward circumstances could not sway his internal convictions. Integrity was modeled by saying the right things, doing the right things, and believing the right things no matter what. We'll start with say the right thing. All throughout the book of Acts, uh, Paul is unwilling, and when we talk about say the right thing, we're talking about preaching the gospel. Paul is unwilling to compromise on the gospel. This is what it says in verse 6. Uh, it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. In other words, Paul is surrounded by people who refuse to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Sadducees did not believe that people could be raised from the dead. And the Pharisees, they knew that they could not say that Jesus was raised from the dead because then they'd have to worship him. It flew in the face of what they believed, that he was not to them their, their long-awaited savior. They had stuck it, stuck it out already. When the grave was empty, they had said that the body was stolen. We have a historical record of this, and so that's what we see here. And Paul could have easily uh, softened his stance and said, Jesus was a great teacher. Jesus was a prophet and just left out the things that were even more true, that Jesus uh, was resurrected from the dead. We see that uh, the Jews arrested him and they accused him of leading a sect that basically caused riots. So they have him arrested. He's put on trial. Uh, he's, he stands before this Jewish council. And then what we see right here in Acts 24, because we're having to skip ahead a little bit, is that he'd been accused and he's brought to this Roman leader named Felix, this Roman governor. And the reason is because the Jews were in a dilemma. Though they wanted Paul dead, they couldn't technically execute him Legally, So they had to take him to someone else and hope that they would pass judgment. And this is what it says in verses 10 through 16. Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. 24, 10 through 16. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city, Neither can they prove to you what they are now bring, bringing up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. He acknowledges their accusation. He says everything they're saying, they can't even prove it. So he's defending himself in some way. And then he makes a confession of his own. He says in verse 14, this I confess to you. I worship God and I believe scripture and I believe in the resurrection. He's saying the right thing. He's Preaching the gospel. And even today, the gospel is still this dividing line in culture, whether we realize that we're wrestling over the same issue or not. 
that the reason we operate through a certain worldview is because Jesus has been raised from the dead. That this is the reason we disagree with culture on certain issues. Because because Jesus was raised from the dead, we can trust every word that is written in the Bible. Because God had already done the most impossible thing by raising a man back to life. Proving he was the son of God. See, today, uh, the reason it's such a dividing line is because the gospel is exclusive. Because Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, it means Muhammad isn't. Because Jesus is the truth, it means Joseph Smith is wrong. Do we understand that today? The gospel is still a dividing line among believers and non-believers. The resurrection is still the thing that separates us. Though it reconciles us to God. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's offensive, and it even comes with a cost today. It can cost you your job to stand on this. It can cost you relationships. It can cost you friends. It can cost you family members. I know people that when they accepted Jesus, they were distanced, and even knowing that uh, these, these are Muslim people that I know, that when they accepted Jesus... They lost their family. And if they were to return to their family, it could cost them their life. The gospel can still cost us today. Not just with our friends, not just with approval. It can cost us good grades. It can cost us our own will, our own personal desires. But the gospel plays the long game. We say the right thing and we do the right thing. Now, we're kind of bouncing around. I've said 23 through 26, this is going to be a summary. It's not possible to read all of this this morning. But Paul was falsely accused of starting riots, and the Jews take him to Felix, and Felix keeps him in prison for two years. And then Felix gives way to Festus, who is the next governor of that area. And Festus went to keep the peace with the Jews, keeps Paul in prison. But this amazing thing happens where as Paul's in prison, King Agrippa, the son of Agrippa I, who died in Acts 12, shows up to welcome Festus into leadership. He shows up to Caesarea with his wife Bernice, King Agrippa does, and and Festus tells him about this prisoner he has named Paul. This guy who is accused of all of these things, but he can't really find any fault against him. And this is, this is what we see. Listen to what Felix tells King Agrippa in chapter 25, starting with verse 18. When the Jewish accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I suppose. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. I love it because what he's saying is, I couldn't find anything wrong with them. What I realized is this is a religious dispute. This isn't a moral issue. This guy hadn't done anything wrong, but everyone wanted him out of the picture because he claims that Jesus is alive. Over and over, Paul's accusers can't even come up with things to accuse him of. He lived with such integrity that the people who wanted him dead couldn't think of good accusations. Even notice in chapter 23, the verses I read at first, when Paul is punched in the face 
at the demand of the high priest, Ananias. When he finds out that it's the high priest who, who he had uh, retorted back to, you're a whitewashed wall. When he finds that out, what did he do? He apologized. See, this is shocking to me because when somebody wrongs me, my heart immediately stores it to use in a future argument, to use in a future dispute. Paul had been punched in the face and apologized to the guy who had him punched. This is part of a larger theme where Paul honors people who are dishonorable. You see, he, he does that with uh, Felix, Festus, and Agrippa, uh, even Ananias, as we, as we saw. But uh, Felix, th- this is so interesting because this is how Paul responds to Felix. Uh, Knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. In other words, I know you're great in this situation, Felix. He's, he's honoring Felix. To Festus, he says uh, in chapter 25, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not ex- seek to escape death. In chapter 26, this is how he responds to Agrippa. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today. In other words, he is honoring these men who are ruling over him. He's not sucking up. He's just telling them, uh, I have high thoughts about you. I trust your judgment in this situation. I do not believe that God would put you in this situation unless I were to trust it. So let me tell you about these guys that he was honoring. Because Felix, he is known by historians, especially those uh, like Tacitus and Josephus who who wrote about him. Uh, Tacitus writes these words, uh, that Felix exercised his royalty with all manner of cruelty and lust. At one point, historically, he paid to have a high priest assassinated. Another point, he had brought a lot of his followers to the Mount of Olives only to have them executed. Cruelty and lust literally defined this man. Festus was the the next governor, and history records that he was a bad leader. Not necessarily anything moral about him, but that he was a bad leader. That people didn't like following him. That he was responsible in many ways because of his leadership for a great war that broke out between the Jews and the Romans in AD 66. What about Agrippa, the son of the man that God had personally killed earlier in Acts? This is Agrippa II. What do we know about him? Well, Bernice, his wife, is his sister. It didn't seem to bother anybody. He practiced incest with his sister Bernice and was unpopular among those he ruled. So why does any of this matter? Because Paul was honoring people who were dishonorable. Paul could have pointed immediately to Ananias' issues, and he didn't. He could have pointed to the cruelty of Felix, the ineptitude of Festus, the blatant sin of Agrippa, but he didn't. He spoke kindly to them. He honored them. See, Paul modeled doing the right thing. 
But Paul's not the hero of this story. It's easy to feel like it is because all I'm talking about is Paul. But Paul, in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Because there's another man, Jesus, who in the face of accusation honored those before him. Who, when everybody tried to accuse him, they couldn't think of what to accuse him for because he was a man of integrity. He was honored, honorable to dishonorable rulers. And maybe you're thinking, that's great, but I'm not Paul, and I'm not Jesus, and I don't need to live up to this standard. And what I want to say today is that if we have trouble doing the right things and saying the right things, it's because our belief is off. We say all the time that our that we do what we do because our heart wants what it wants. And our heart wants what it wants because we believe what we believe. Final part, believe the right thing. In other words, without right beliefs, we cannot have right actions. We must believe four things. I know I said it's one point, but it's like a lot of A's and B's and ones and twos. Four things that we must believe. The first is the gospel message. That our hearts cannot change unless Jesus steps into our lives. We must believe the gospel message. So what is the gospel message? Well, the way that we phrase it here that we we feel like is so outlined in Scripture are four words. God, man, Christ, and response. God is holy, the creator of the world, that man was the pinnacle of God's creation. But man rebelled and chose to sin. This separated us from God. We needed to be reconciled. And that's when Jesus came to reconcile us. See, Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life. Died on the cross in our place that we might be forgiven if, the response, we repent of our sins and believe in the finished work of Jesus. That he was the son of God who died for us and was raised again. second thing we have to believe is Jesus is with us. In Acts 23, chapter 11, there's this really interesting, almost pastoral moment that you can see that that if we read this too fast, we skip over. But it says this, that the Lord met with Paul in his jail cell. 23.11, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, this is Jesus talking, so you must testify also in Rome. Jesus encouraged Paul by telling him, that his desire to visit Rome would be granted. Now, I do want to back up for a second because we say all the time that Scripture can be descriptive or prescriptive. That sometimes it's just telling you what happened. It's not necessarily telling you what should happen in every situation throughout life. For example, so many people will look at the Bible and say, well, a lot of these people of God had like multiple wives. These kings, had, that's descriptive. It's just telling you what did happen. It's not telling you what should be. Well, in this case, this is a descriptive passage. It's a narrative. So we know narrative that tells us stories is just telling us what really happened. So Jesus really did meet with Paul. It's descriptive. So how does that matter to us? Well, because there's a prescriptive element to the fact that Jesus met Paul's deepest need in his darkest hour. One of my favorite passages of scripture is Psalm 46, and it begins by saying, God is my refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. 
What it's saying is in the middle of the storm, when the waters rise, God is there to meet us, to hold us steady and move us forward. That we're not alone. We believe the gospel message. We believe Jesus is with us. And Hebrews 4 helps us believe, this is the third thing, that Christ has already been where we now walk. This is what it says in Hebrews 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. But one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Not only is Christ with us, he's been there before. Christ came to earth fully God, yet fully man. All of God wrapped in the weakness of flesh, and though he never sinned, he was tempted by the enemy. He knew what it was like to be exhausted. He knew what it was like to be sad. There, uh, for example, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. He knew what it was like to be desperate when he sweat drops of blood in the garden before his final arrest and crucifixion. He knew what it was like to be too worn out when he asked for help with carrying the cross. He's been there. And so when we're broken or heavy hearted or too tired to continue, we know that he's been there before. When we're tired of temptation, we know that he's been there before. So we do not approach the throne of grace to a God who cannot sympathize with us. He can sympathize with us. We can trust him because the gospel is true, because he's with us, because he's been there. And then the last thing, and this is so encouraging to me today, that hope is on the other side. You know, anyone can have integrity for a day, but did we notice that Paul had been imprisoned for years for this? This wasn't his first stint in prison. This wasn't the first time he was abused because of the gospel, but in this case, he sat there for two years. You know, when our expectations are delayed for a really long time, it gets discouraging and we can lose hope. This is just true of us. I've heard it said before that unmet expectations, uh, that's, that's where frustrations come from. Frustrations are birthed out of unmet expectations. Proverbs says this about waiting, that uh, hope deferred makes the heart grow sick. That's Proverbs 13, 12. So we know that we are in finite bodies that are weak, that get worn out, that get desperate, that wonder if hope is on the other end. And the truth is, in the middle of our trials, we begin to believe that at the end of suffering is only more suffering. And so we lose hope. But this is what Romans chapter 5, this is Paul writing again. All these texts that we're using, this is Paul writing. Romans chapter 5, starting with verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And Character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit 
who's been given to us. That the Holy Spirit himself equips us in the middle of our suffering to hold out for hope, knowing that the gospel is true, that Jesus is with us, that he's been there, that he's producing in us Christ-like character that makes us more like Jesus in the middle of our trials. For some in this room, you're suffering and you've prayed and you keep doing the right thing and saying the right thing and it doesn't feel like it's paying off. It feels like at the end of this rope is only bad news. I want to tell you that hope is there. Hope because of what the Holy Spirit puts inside of us. Hope because of what the Word of God reveals to us. That we can have hope that everything that the Bible says is true. That one day all of this difficulty will be wiped away. Because Jesus is alive. As we close today, I want to encourage you with this. That enduring in times of suffering is a supernatural work. That Romans 5 here, it's talking about hope because of our hope in Christ. That sometimes in this world, it looks like it ends with bad news. That difficult things at the end of the rope can have bad news. The good news is that life doesn't end at the end of this rope. The good news is that this finite life, this temporal life, these few years that we have here that are like a mist or a vapor, that that's not the end of our story. That because of what Jesus has done for us, because of uh, him showing up to reconcile us to God because of his perfection, that he took our sin that we might have his righteousness, because of that hope, this is not the end of your story. So that if the disease is terminal, you're not hopeless. So that if your family is never reconciled, you're not hopeless. Because our hope is in Christ, it's not in circumstances. And that allows us to hold fast in the middle of the storm as the waters rise, knowing that we might go under, but Jesus has been there and he will lead us out the other side. In this life or in the next. Let me pray for you. God, we love you. We really do, Lord, and we know that enduring in the middle of suffering is a work that only you can do in us. That as we go through suffering, you're producing in us endurance. And that endurance is producing in us character, and that character helps us fix our eyes on Jesus and know that the hope that the Holy Spirit has sealed us for is in Jesus. And because the gospel is true, we know that Christ is with us. In our deepest, darkest hour, and our most prominent needs, we know that everywhere we go, he has walked before us. And we know that it doesn't end here, that hope is on the other end. So Lord, would you remind us that as we play the long game, as we desire to be people of integrity, that it's worth it. It's worth it as we cling to you. It's worth it as we bear fruit because we're connected to the vine, because we're abiding in Christ, Lord. It's worth it. You're growing us to make us like Jesus. We're being sanctified so that one day we will be glorified with our Father in heaven. 
Lord, remind us today. In the middle of our trials, in the middle of our temptations, in the middle of the difficulties and the strife, Lord, as the waters rise and the earth shakes and the wind blows, Lord, would you remind us that you're with us, that we're not alone, that you hold us steady and move us forward when the storm begins to rage, that you're doing something in the middle of our suffering, that it's never hopeless, it's never pointless. And that's because Jesus didn't just live a perfect life. He rose from the grave. God, as we prepare to leave today, I pray, God, that you would instill this hope in weary hearts. And God, that we would take it to those we know who need it. Being reminded, Lord, that you're doing something. For those who are in Christ, Lord, everything works together for good. God, there might be some in this room who don't know you. And so, at the end of this life, Lord, for those who, who don't know you, who live apart from you, who die in their sin never to confess and repent and place their faith in Jesus, Lord, it's not good news at the end of this life. God, I pray that for those who don't know you, that they'd come talk to me or somebody else this morning. To repent of their sins and to place their faith in you, knowing, God, that you're with us. And that you've provided a way, Jesus has provided a way that we could be reconciled to you. So, Lord, as we close, would you move in a mighty way and we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name.